She is the acknowledged trendsetter and leading practitioner of what's known as documentary theater, and her compelling and acclaimed works for the stage include Fires in the Mirror, Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and Other Identities, Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992, House Arrest, A Search for American Character in and Around the White House, Past and Present, and Let Me Down Easy, currently playing at Second Stage Theater in New York. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm honored and somewhat daunted to spend an hour interviewing one of the theater's great interviewers, Anna DeVere Smith. Welcome, Anna. Thanks. Now, normally, I would launch right into saying, let's talk about Let Me Down Easy because that's your current show. But I think for our listeners, I'd like to start with a bigger view, which is to talk about your process of creating these shows drawn from interviews. This is part of a project that called On the Road that you began doing, if our research is correct, in the early 80s. That's right. Once you decide a topic or think you've found a topic, what's your process to start gathering the material? Uh, Well, I just start talking to people who know something about it and then they introduce me to other people. And you're recording the interviews? I record it, yes. Video, audio? Um, For many years, since the 80s, it was just audio, but uh, Let Me Down Easy is the first time I started to use video. Hmm. Has that changed the way in which you subsequently move the work into the performance realm? Um, not really, except that, you know, it's another useful tool in terms of memory, but it's the same process as I started with in the beginning. How many interviews do you do for one of these pieces? I can only assume that you do many more than actually end up in the shows. Right. Well, um, with this show... Uh, I interviewed around 300. Uh, for Twilight, I interviewed 320-something. Uh, for House Arrest, 520. And for uh, for Fires in the Mirror uh, is actually different. There were about only about 50 interviews, and then I did half of those. I did about 23 characters or something in hmm. in, in in Fires in the Mirror. Wow. So so let's let's go. It'll help having heard that. Now let's let's talk about Let Me Down Easy. That began as a commission, interestingly, from the Yale School of Medicine. Right, yeah. So what what was the commission? What were you asked to do? I was asked to come to Yale and interview doctors and patients. At the time, the person who commissioned me, whose name is Ralph Horowitz, at the time head of internal medicine at Yale Medical School, now the head of medicine at Stanford Medical School, um, was interested in looking at the doctor-patient relationship given all of the obstacles that there were then to that relationship, in part the 15-minute appointment that we have, if we can get it, with a doctor, Um, the fact that in the the 20th century there's so much science and technology that came into medicine. And I think sort of the overriding concern that how do we both embrace all the science and the technology, but make sure that doctors are healers as well as scientists. Or where are the healers? Maybe some doctors are just scientists. Uh, Where's all the care? Where do we get that? How do doctors listen? And um, I really loved the time at Yale. I loved how they were as an organization. I loved the care that they had for their patients. And I loved talking to the patients. And so that kind of stuck in my mind. I mean, I then you know, after the end of that project, went off and did other things. I was on a television show, interestingly enough, about doctors called Presidio Med, about women doctors, a series. Um, did a bunch of other stuff, but then came back to this project in 2005 and did more interviews and then over the past four years had a variety of workshops and productions. Well, before we leave the School of Medicine, I'm curious – Certainly medical schools do not usually commission theatrical pieces. No. So what what either do you know or what do you think their hope was and what was the culmination of the project there? Well, I I think that, you know, the question would really go to Dr. Horowitz who I think was extremely imaginative. I can remember one conversation because what he asked me to do was called Medical Grand Rounds, which is a – 
uh, simply put, a sort of a lecture series for doctors. Um, if you can imagine, I was quote unquote performing at 8 a.m. for all these guys in white coats and starched shirts with indignant that they had to turn their beepers off. But, you know, that's usually a scientist there talking to them, not a clown. And at one point, I remember calling him about, as I had involved a couple of singers and everything, I said, you know, you're trying to save lives. I mean, you've got the circus coming to town here. Um, so I hate to take your time. But I think he was very, I consider him one of my muses for this project because I think what he saw was the potential of a theater artist who has to listen as part of her work. He thought, I suppose, that there was something that I could share about just what listening is and what empathizing and feeling is and to see if there was something that that could offer, you know, a science, really. Um, and now you find this in a variety of places, not in the form of a, of a performer, but I know that Columbia, for example, has a program in narrative medicine. Um, and I believe, I'm sure there are other medical schools that are looking at things like storytelling and, and other ways to think about how to get to the story that a patient is trying to tell you and to see if there are relevant things to listen to. Um, as one of the doctors said to me at Yale way back then, when a medical student is learning to listen, they're learning to listen for uh, where's the pain, where does the pain radiate to, what brings on the pain, what makes the pain go away. And so it's, it's challenging for that person who's learning how to listen to be listening to more than that. But when people come with a story of what hurts, I think somebody like that would probably find that the story they're giving you is in disarray when you think of it, even when you try to compose your thoughts about what to say to a doctor. Lauren Hutton, who's one of the quote-unquote characters in Let Me Down Easy, says, you know, even, you know, somebody like Lauren, who has the best medical care in the world, you know, she realized that she was intimidated by doctors. And she says, you know, just write down your questions and go in and call them out and say them out in any way that you want. And even me, and I've been in, in and out of all kinds of prestigious places met a lot of very fancy doctors over the last eight years working on this project, I always sit down, close my eyes, think, make a list before I call my doctor because I know I'm going to be intimidated by the fact that he has just a little bit of time and that I'm going to feel pretty dumb. Um, so I try to get it organized and I'm sure that I'm not unique in that way. Hmm. I have to pick up on something you said. You just described yourself as a clown and the circus coming to town. You have done extraordinary work, highly praised, highly prestigious and honored. Why would you think of yourself in those terms? Well, I think if someone were to call me a clown um, or a fool, it would be the highest compliment you could give me. Um, I think about a clown in the really epic sense. Brecht loved the clowns, as you know. You know, the great fools, the great parts in Shakespeare are those fools. I mean, the fools are always bringing the truth in the guise of foolishness because they're the ones who can do it without getting killed. And so there's something about being in the guise of foolishness that gives us a place that we can participate in society without paying the high price that, say, a politician or a president or someone else uh, would pay. So to me, if you were to call me a clown or a fool, that's high praise. You know, maybe it would be nice to be thought of as a poet. I'm not a poet. Um, and that would be only being put in a kind of quotations. It sounds, you know, like I'm taking myself too seriously. But I, I think to be called a clown or a fool is high praise. So I suppose it's a sign of my grandiosity or boasting to call myself a clown. Hmm. Now, you've used another word, and I was going to bring this up later. You say you are not a poet, but I was fascinated when I went back and I wanted to review the shows and I picked up the scripts because I'd only seen them performed. And the form in which you write out these transcripts in the performance scripts are not in paragraphs. Uh, they they almost look like poems on the page, and I'm wondering why why you do that in lieu of simply using what we know to be standard um, standard prose and and standard punctuation. Well, that goes back to Shakespeare. Um, 
which is that, as you know, in Shakespeare, we're used to seeing. I, I, first of all, if we hadn't have had the printing press, we could never have had Shakespeare. I mean, we would there would have been a Shakespeare, but we wouldn't know about him. And in my case, if there weren't tape recorders, I, cu- I couldn't have done what I do now in 1855. Well, probably would have been a slave too, but you know, none, <laughs> maybe on the plantation, but I would have had to have been like a magnificent genius to like recall everything to the extent that I recall what I do with the aid of a tape recorder that documents what people said. But okay, so let's take that printing press and let's think about Shakespeare. So he's writing across the page in an iambic pentameter. Da 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 da. And when things vary from that, we know it's another kind of character. One of the most influential influential people in my own uh, career and also in my life journey was a magnificent teacher that I had when I was at ACT, American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco in the 70s, um, uh, Juanita Pat Rice. She was extraordinary. She was my first Shakespeare teacher ever when it came to speaking Shakespeare, speaking it. And on the first day of class, she said, well, you know, it the the, the 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 scan should go in Shakespeare iambic pentameter da 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 if it goes da 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 in other words if the rhythm is upside down the second time second beat then this means there's something really interesting psychologically going on with the character and you should pay attention to that adjustment in the rhythm and the example she gave of this was in King Lear at a certain point he says never 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 Everything's upside down, and in fact, King Lear's world is falling apart. And when I started doing this work, I was really like a little scientist, I thought of myself as, going around with my tape recorder trying to get people to speak in certain rhythms that they would set up and then to break away from them. So I see the page that I make as a document of what is going on rhythmically with a person. So if you were to look at my pages, you should see, oh, you know, very few people speak all the way across the what we think of as a page. Very few people speak in whole sentences. And so as they begin to break away from that expectation of a sentence is when I become very interested in them because that's when they're speaking in their unique way. And that's why um, the page of the of the play is set up that way. I used to say that I was thinking that people were speaking in organic poems um, because it's documenting something about breath and poetry. But I don't know that a poet would would necessarily agree that that those are poems. I mean, I have high, high respect for the poets. So this leads me to the next question. I'm sitting here with acting editions of your plays. I have only seen you in your plays. Um... You have the benefit of the tapes, mm-hmm. be they audio or video recordings of the people. You have attempted – you have said you've worked to set down the rhythms very carefully so that if other performers were to work on it, they have a rhythm to follow. They don't have the tapes. Right. If other people do your plays, do you believe that they should be trying to also mimic the voices right, of the people as you do yeah. or do you feel that at a certain point it goes beyond the specificity of the real individual and simply becomes a character? I think that the, that's a wonderful question and that embedded in it are a number of questions. One, let's just think about the fact that we're on a timeline. We're in this moment in history. If somebody were to begin what I do 50 years from now or maybe even 10 years from now, the notion of having those tapes accessible to everybody would be a no-brainer. Right now, and I have said this to many publishers, let's make a disc of the real interviews so that the actors studying this can study the voices just like I do. Everybody says, it's too expensive. But I think in maybe even five years, that's not going to be so expensive. So I can imagine the day when that will be an absolute no-brainer. Because the technology has changed dramatically since I began the project. When you bring up video, the reason I can use video now is the cameras are so small and inexpensive. When I started in 1979 with my uh, portable, thank goodness, if I'd, again, even born 10 years before, I could have, would have had to carry around this great big thing. So when I'm walking around at the time with a portable tape recorder, which was still about – Oh, 11 by 5 in size. Now I can tape on my iPod and it's digital, right? My poor tapes, which I spend an extraordinary amount of money 
keeping in a, you know, sort of temperature-controlled art house, those would be antiquated. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of my work on the dad. That's mm-hmm. totally – you can't find a dad machine to play it on anymore. But eventually and probably very soon, the technology will be so simple that these can be replicated and people can study the voices. But in the meantime, uh, let's say with Let Me Down Easy, for example, I'm very eager to have it published because it's a work. But I really want to publish an edition that's not just these monologues that you see in the finalized Let Me Down Easy after variety of productions. But I want to make a book that has some of the other monologues because they're just great monologues of people that have had extraordinary things happen to them. I mean, you told me that you saw the earliest production, the one at the Long Wharf um, Theater, where there's material from Rwanda about the Rwandan genocide. Extraordinary monologues. There's a character in this version that many... um, audiences remark on a young woman doctor at uh, a charity hospital in New Orleans during Katrina. That is one of the best monologues for a student of acting, male or female, to study that I can think of. So, so each character brings a fabulous story that I think, you know, actors who even want to use, you know, the traditional Stanislavski technique will be able to illuminate those in ways that I think are audience worthy. Hmm. I hope that's made some sense. It does. It, it, it's fascinating. Let's stay with the specificity of, of Let Me Down Easy. Let's go now to 2005. As you said, you were originally doing this piece um, at 8 a.m. during Grand Rounds. Then it had to become a piece that you were doing at 8 p.m. for paying audiences at a certain point. What was the process of transitioning what was almost an educational work for a defined uh, constituency to a work that would play to a more general audience? Not much different except that I had more interviews Um, instead of standing in front of a lab table – in an old medical amphitheater, you know, uh, bringing into it aspects of design and a director and all of those things. Um, I did have a director actually for those medical grand rounds even, the wonderful Elizabeth Diamond, um, who was a professor at Yale and is a professor at Yale, as you probably know, a wonderful uh, director and professor of directors at the the Yale Drama School. so it's bringing in the aspects of the theater, which are the mise-en-scene, uh, and uh, being blessed by having people who were interested in protecting this work and bringing it forward, um, some of them theater people like Daryl Roth, uh, Gordon Adelstein, who at one point, as you know, at the Long Wharf, who just said, you know what, just come up here and you and I will be in a rehearsal room and just shoot the characters back and forth. Before I even had a director, I mean, I just, that was one of the most precious dear things to have happen is to go there for two or three weeks or something and just be in a room with Gordon and and play the characters. Because I work in a, you know, the way that I work is it's, you know, the page is an afterthought. The page is there. We've been talking about it today, but we understand the limitations of it. Um, I see the script as a, a... something that just helps the stage manager. It's an afterthought. But Hmm. before that time, I have to have a chance to breathe, uh, make the characters real. So Gordon uh, helped with that. Uh, Daryl financially supported the play in the beginning. A wonderful friend of mine, even before the stage, actually, of coming to the Longworth in Texas, who believes in my work, uh, uh, funded uh, a very important time with the work that I went to uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center, and then immediately after that came and did a workshop at the Zachary Scott Theater, a wonderful theater in Austin, Texas, and then coming from that, and at least out of that experience, having a script that I could give to Gordon that he said, come here. And then, so workshops, uh, then going um, after the Long Wharf production, uh, uh, Gideon Lester liked it so much, and he and Rob Borchard invited me to come to the ART, and then from that, uh, 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 Carol Rothman and Chris Burney invited me to come to second stage and in the middle going back to Texas. So it's really 
you know, like all of us, having people who both financially and in terms of morale and creatively and intellectually are willing to sometimes think outside of the box and help us, you know, get through the process because none of this is for free. Yeah. I've, I've read people describe this piece uh, in many varying ways because people always want to encapsulate an experience and make it you know, something you can say in a sentence. And I've heard it described as a piece about the human body and how it breaks down. I've heard it described as a piece about the medical profession or the medical world. I've heard it described as a piece about health care. And, of course, health care has taken on an increasingly political uh, bent. Is there a way to encapsulate Let Me Down Easy? Well, I think the marketing people um, at Second Stage did a pretty great job. And if I can remember the clauses of the very effective sentence, it would be great, but I probably can't. But it's something like the power of the body, the resilience of the spirit, the price of care, something like that. I Mm -hmm. think that's really good. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it helps define the play politically. Uh, but it does in a way. I think that it's about love. Just as the first character, Reverend, uh, Reverend Professor Dr. James Cohn, Union Theological Seminary says that when he hears that title, Let Me Down Easy, he thinks it's about love. Hmm. You know, and he, he says it puts it in the, puts it in the, um, genre of black love songs and says, um, that it's got both a personal and a social meaning. And I think that's right. And I think every single one of the 20 or 21, I'm not sure, characters in Let Me Down Easy talks about something that they love and they give a glimmer of what it would mean to them to lose it. Hmm. So that although, yes, the play ultimately grapples with mortality, I would say it's about love and death or love and loss. Hmm. Yet in all of your works, I think it would be hard to say that there is not a – a, the- a political theme. Well, there is in each a political them, theme, absolutely. Unquestionably, I also read though that you, while while you and you just accepted the phrase political, but you do not see yourself as an activist. Well, I don't know if I said that. Um, okay. I mean, I think you know these words are you know, put people in certain categories. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe I am to a certain extent. Um, I did make a choice when I was younger, uh, coming out of having been educated during the 60s. Um, I thought I wanted to be a social activist. That's what I thought. Uh, once I, I originally I wanted to be a psychiatrist. My mother thought it was too sensitive. <laughs> then I wanted to be a <laughs> linguist. And then, you know, I thought because of all the fervor, that was going on when I graduated from college. I thought I wanted to be a social activist and went out to California looking for a revolution that was over, um, so-called. So, I mean, we all thought it was a revolution in the 60s. It was mainly a cultural revolution, wasn't it? Um, but I, I, I came out of it pursuing what I thought was that. But I very, very quickly, uh, after my first summer at ACT, but, but fast – immediately knew that I'd found my home um, in the world of, well, sounds grandiose, doesn't it, but of artists. I I knew that. And I chose what I didn't like about the political people I met then, although I was uh, fascinated by them, is that, say, a theater group that gave itself over to politics at that time was less concerned about aesthetic process and what I loved so much about being at ACT at a time uh, when, you know, uh, you know, Shakespeare was sort of at the center of it. I really was fascinated and remain fascinated with the process of what it means that the theater is about this spoken word with the anticipation that when we're working well, the power of that spoken word can make a difference. So that's really where I ended up landing. And so I feel first, last, and always what I'm trying to do is to master a craft. And so whatever you want to call me from that platform, that's what I am. I'm fascinated to hear you say that it was after your first year at ACT, you knew this was the thing for you. That's what led you 
to ACT. Had you been doing theater, you did your undergraduate work at a college in Pennsylvania, you grew up in Baltimore. Had theater been a part of your life or was that something you became interested in later on? Well, not in a grand way. I mean, um, I was always interested in dramatics. You know, I was in little plays as a child in a segregated, for all intents and purposes, segregated school. I was in church plays. Um, I loved it when we got to go to the theater, but it wasn't like I was in a children's theater group of any kind. And um, in college, I got cast mainly because of who I was then. You know, I didn't really, like, look forward to the productions and go want to get a part. You know, hmm. it was more like I played, for example, a part I'd love to go back and play again, The Player in Stoppard's uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Hmm. Um, uh, Doreen and Tartuffe. I mean, sort of, I was sort of a, I was funnier than I am now. I was a clown. And so, <laughs> you know, it was a small school and uh, directors liked my foolishness and you know, I'd probably be a richer person if I had stayed being that kind of clown than I became. I mean, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, when I, I went to ACT by accident, I didn't know it was a big deal. I was working at the time in a wonderful job in a junior college, uh, and I just had a lot of energy and didn't know what to do with my extra time and called up ACT. There was a great switchboard operator. Switchboard, if you can imagine. I'm really letting on my age. Bulestein. I I actually remember having spoken to her and she is legendary to anybody Legend- who's ever called yeah, and ACT many people in their were career. Calling, yeah. And uh, I called and Bulestein answered the phone and I said, do you need any stage managers? And she said, well, my dear, everyone's union. And I said, well, are there any classes, you know, acting classes. Well, you're too late for this and you're too late for that. But we do have a summer training program, do this, that or the other. And um, I went in and did probably what could be called, if I only had a tape of it, like, here is the encyclopedia of what not to do at an audition and did a very bombastic performance at something like 21 years old of uh, or 22, something like that. Of of uh, Lady Macbeth, <laughs> and God bless him, the person who saw it, who was actually had a lot of heft at ACT at Hastings, just oh, sure. just sort of sat there and watched this bombastic thing and said, you know, well, you want to be an actress? And I said, yeah, and I did the summer training program without knowing that everybody there was competing for one of fifteen slots in the summer and uh, in the year and got one, not not knowing what journey I was on. I thought I was just doing something interesting with my extra time, and I fell in love. Hmm. But even in the summer program, you were seen by the artistic director of the company. Was, was Ed running the company at that point? Uh, everybody was there. I mean, <laughs> Bill, Ed, Alan, all of them. And, uh, you know, and in fact, it's kind of a miracle because my teacher had told them that I wasn't interested in uh, really being an actor, that I was a social activist. And Alan Fletcher called me in. And said, now, we heard you're not really interested in this, but we have a spot for you. And um, I think I said I'd think about it. I don't know what I – one of my friends said, are you kidding? Do you know what this is? You better take it. (laughs) So ACT gave you community? It gave me everything. It gave you structure. It changed the course of my life. It gave me an equity card. It gave me language. It gave me an intellectual base for my adulthood. It – Midway in my um, second year, somebody left the company and Bill put me in the company. I got an equity card. I got – I. it totally – it's the only time in my life that everything changed and every door opened. This first place I taught. I got my MFA there. I was about to leave after my second year and Bill Ball called me in. And said, I hear you're going to go to New York. I said, yeah. He said, well, look, we, we'd like to start an MFA program. We don't have any students. Why don't you stick around? Hmm. So when did you make the decision to go to New York? Because it, it wasn't all that long after. You, you may have stayed a year or two, but you did, you did end up in New York pretty quickly. Yes. I, after that third year of working on my MFA, I think there were three students or four or something, I just decided it was time to go to New York. I actually had a dream one night about uh, Ellen Stewart. I didn't know who she was, but I would, I would, you know, I was poor, even though I had a spot in the company, I had no money, and I would buy the Village Voice. 
and I kept reading about this La Mama and this woman, Ellen Stewart. And I had a dream that I met Ellen Stewart, the head of La Mama. And uh, so I came to New York. <laughs> and then my first job was at La Mama. And I was shocked that Ellen Stewart was black. I didn't know that. Huh, no photos in the voice at that point? I, I guess I just didn't, you know, I don't, th- no photos of her. There were reviews of the plays, hmm. no photos of her. Should I ask what Alma, the ghost of Spring Street, was? I can't was- even believe you've got that there. That's shocking. <laughs> it was this wonderful play in, 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 written by a guy called Ozzy Rodriguez uh, about a, a time in New York, um, and I played this. Uh, I mean, early, early, early New York. Um, we're talking Hamilton that time in New York. And I played sort of this voodoo kind of character based on an artist that, that the playwright knew. Hmm. And that was, that was your New York debut. That was my New York debut. So presumably then there were a few years around New York doing various things. I see a, you were in a production of Mother Courage at the New York Shakespeare Festival. That was my big break. But that was an under – by big break, it was the first sort of real – I don't know. The public has always been such a big deal. I mean such an institutional big deal. And I was uh, you know an understudy. I never went on and I had a tiny part – in a chorus, and I can't sing. Uh, but I, it was the part I've always wanted to play, and of course, I outgrew. I always two parts. The big sad thing for me is the two parts I always wanted to play were Kate in Mother Courage, the mute daughter, and I understudied her but didn't get to play her. And I always wanted to play Benita in Raisin in the Sun. I'll mm. never forget the day I called my friend, wonderful writer, and um, he writes about black movie stars, Donald Bogle. And uh, I called him up crying when I got a call to go audition as Ruth at uh, for Raisin in the Sun. I didn't get that part either, but I said, oh, Donald, the day is gone. I can never be beneath it. They've just called me to audition for Ruth. But, um, yeah, I always, always had wanted to play that part. So I was the understudy. Mm. Now, if- I have your history right. By 1982, 1983, you'd begun to conceive these on the road. Well, I started thinking about them in the late 70s. I really Hmm. started thinking about them in 73. Wow. When um, I was at ACT after my second year and I uh, went in and just got up the courage to ask if I could teach. And uh, Alan Fletcher said, well, you you want to teach games? So – I went and met with my favorite teacher, uh, Joy Carlin, who taught games. And, you know, she said, get the book, uh, Improvisation for the Theater, and read it. And I read it. She said, then we'll meet before your first class. And I came to that meeting with the book. And she said, the first lesson is don't walk into the room on the first day with the book. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't give away all your secrets. Don't give away the fact that you need the book. But I – that summer when I was teaching games, I think it's the first time that I started to think about how what I had learned in Shakespeare as language – about language as structure – could eventually become a theatrical idea. So that summer I directed a production of just a variety of plays where I thought that writers were as attuned to language as Shakespeare was, Edward Albee, Sam Shepard, and put together this production. And that got me really, really thinking and thinking and thinking. And so for the next few years, I read and read and read everything I could and listened to music and jazz and all this stuff leading my way towards thinking about going to real people to study their structure and turning that into a theatrical form. When was the actual first opportunity for you to perform in this style that you want well, to Well, the first opportunity wasn't for wasn't originally for me at all, but I sort of got this idea as I mentioned about um, looking at how real people spoke. I had my tape recorder and I went around New York and I um, interviewed people by saying that I had an actor who looked like them and I would either I had one or I'd find one. And the first one that I made of these was with 20 actors. And I did it in a loft down in uh, on Leonard Street in um, in Tribeca, which is now the area for rich people <laughs> with babies. But at the time, it was button factories, as you know, and dance studios. And so the first one of the On the Roads had 
20 actors and then we invited the 20 real people and all their friends. And I played one of the parts. Hmm. And I really – after it was a really wonderful evening. It was very – people loved it. And I thought, well, you know, I, I don't have enough money to pay actors to do this. And then I remembered that I had been a mimic as a child and I thought, well, I'll just do it for a while until I can raise enough money and then I'll, then I'll have a company. Huh. So it was an economic decision. It was an economic <laughs> not, decision. Not an ego decision. It, no, far from it. It's probably the hmm. opposite. Now that piece, it's to the limited amount you described, it sounds like it was a bit free form in terms of just what you got from people. How did you begin? Not really because I still had the problem of – well, there were two things that made it not free form. One thing was, again, I knew that I wanted to get people to speak in a way that that they'd set up a certain rhythm. Let's go back to Shakespeare. And then they would do something surprising. So by chance, I met a linguist at a cocktail party and, you know, what kind of like, what do you do? What do you do? And I was always embarrassed to say I was an actor because I never had any work, you know, because you, you could never answer that question. What have I seen you in? And I said, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm the, what I'm really interested in is how people talk and stuff. And, you know, nobody else but a linguist would care about that. <laughs> and she said, um, well, I could give you three questions that will guarantee that people will set up a certain rhythm and then break it. And the three questions were – Have you ever come close to death? Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? And do you know the circumstances of your birth? So that first on the road that I made in New York, I literally like talked to the lifeguard at the 63rd Street Y. Hmm. Um, I talked to a hairdresser at the at the at the then very very Tony hair salon Sinandra, and so 20 people. My character was a woman who worked across from me in my temp job at J.P. Stevens. And I'd, they'd talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And at a certain point, I'd ask one of those questions. And so the, the first on the road that I met, made, kind of had, you know, Brechtian banners, you know, circumstances of your birth, close to death, guilty of something you didn't do. So it did have a structure, and I did have the same problem that I have every time I work, which was I had hours and hours of tape. I had to pare it down. And in this case, I also had to suit... The actor. I had mm-hmm. to suit 20 people. Hmm. So um, – and and really in a way, I was dealing with 40 people because I was dealing with 20 real people and 20 actors. So the, the problem or the challenge, I mean problem in a good way that my work always presents, which is how do you manage many voices, I was starting to learn how to do back then in that first one. And both from that first one to today, I mean, you mentioned, as we were talking about Let Me Down Easy, you mentioned individuals who worked with you in the process, Gordon Edelstein and and others. Um, Who do you choose to bring in during the process? When, When do you want a director? When do you want a sounding board? When do you want a dramaturg? How do you... How do you decide or and, – and, and who do you choose to use? Um, well, I mean they're all different kinds of people all along the road. Um, you know, in the beginning, the first people uh, – depends on how complicated the project is. Uh, Let Me Down Easy, I did interviews on three continents. So um, I went with photographer. Uh, I went with, you know, people who helped me set up things, people who had helped me organize a trip. In Africa, in Rwanda, Uganda, and South Africa, I had to have translators, fixers, they're called, the people who set you up, Hmm. um, drivers, all that. I consider all of those people as informing the project because the drivers, the fixers, the translators are, first of all, translating and guiding me through their culture Hmm. in a certain way. And so, so it's a long road with all different kinds of people bringing different kinds of intelligence to to the project. So, um, you know, I think a director comes, you know, when there's something on paper. There's nothing for a director to do in this project until there's something on paper. Uh, and that takes a while before I'm, I'm at that, that point. Um, and designers, you know, uh, in the case of Let Me Down Easy, there were actually designers involved before directors. Anne Hold Ward, who is a particular type of costume designer. She gets – she listens to all the tapes. She watches all the videos. She she has a lot to say about the people. Uh, David Rockwell was the first set designer who kind of – so it's 
I'm very, very grateful for all the people who come around this project. And even when we have interns and people in the room, you know, I tell the artistic director and I tell the interns, I said, nobody is passive in here. You know, we, we may not ask you to speak, but you are present and you have to sit here. You can't be texting. You can't, I mean, you gotta, you gotta be alive with us. So I consider it all a part of it. And then, you know, we have this word we use in the theater called dramaturg that nobody really understands. In my case, that might be a researcher. The people all want that title, um, you know, but it, it could be a researcher. Uh, certain academics I like to bring in to help me think about race and gender in a way that is speaks to the academic community because I am an academic and academics tend to look at my work with great scrutiny in that way. Hmm. Looking at works that you've done, it seems that in – the 80s, you were really doing all of your work on the West Coast, at least um, the, the major stuff that we came up with. I'm wondering about with this self-created work after this New York piece, when you know you ended up at the public theater where you began to do a series of pieces. It seems um, 91 was the first time that mm-hmm. we saw you saw you there. Mm. Well, I'd always wanted to work at the public. Um, when I came that first year, um, and was looking for Ellen Stewart, <laughs> and I mean, and found her right away, or Ozzy Rodriguez. Um, never met Ellen. I remember that's the day I found out she was black. She was sitting in the back of the theater, and she yelled from the back of the theater, "Ozzy, you look just like the devil." I thought that sounds like a black woman. But around the corner, as you know, was the public and the great African-American activist, black playwright, uh, Ed Bullins, had a a Saturday workshop at Mm -hmm. the public, which was so important to be a new kid in town with no connections, literally none. When I left ACT um, and said, who can I look up in New York? I was told, well, the only person you could really look up is Lloyd Richards. I really hope that I hope you don't mind me saying the R word here, R here word here, race. I only hope that young African Americans who come to New York now feel that there's more than one option. Because when I met Lloyd Richards and so admired him and went over to an audition and said, "Oh, I'm so happy to meet you," he said, "Well, what do you want me to do? Jump up and down?" So I don't, you know, I I think that I didn't mean much to him. So you know. Um, he is such an important person in the theater, but I wasn't anybody he resonated with. So that mm. wasn't going to work. So what are you going to do? Thank goodness there was a place I could go every Saturday and uh, read new plays that I was working on. And I can't tell you how important that space was. There were two spaces where I felt at home in New York artistically. One was the public theater and the other was the Museum of Modern Art. I mean, interestingly enough... Um, on the board there now, but at, at, at MoMA. So the public always meant something to me. And of course, Antizaki Shange's groundbreaking play um, for colored girls was playing there the summer that I arrived. Um, and so I would always go to stuff at the public. Got that first little tiny part there in Mother Courage. And then George Wolfe was doing a festival there when Joanne Acolytus was the head of the public and came and asked me to be a part of it. Hmm. And I did not know what I was going to do. He said, what are you going to do when you come to New York? I was in San Francisco at the time. I said, I'll probably chase ambulances. As it turned, as luck would have it, I had a fellowship that year at Harvard, and it was the first time in my adult life I didn't have to go to work every day. And I came down to New York and started doing interviews, some of which were in Crown Heights. But I also did other interviews. And I did this one hour or something like that performance in George's Festival. And Joanne came backstage, Acolytus, who was then the artistic director, and said, this is really about that Brooklyn part. Hmm. She said, expand that and send it to me. And I sent it to her. And she was going to put me in a uh, slot with the great, great, talk about a classic, genius clown, Denis Trevance. Hmm. And then that fell apart. And I was at Brown teaching one day a week for Paula Vogel. And I was just heartbroken when it fell apart. And Paula said to me, she's the first person I called when I got MacArthur, MacArthur, 
Paula said to me, you get on that train and you go down there and you talk Joanne Acolytus into doing your play. I said, oh, I can't do that. She said, you do it. Mm -hmm. And I got on that train and I came down and I said to Joanne, which I've never done before or since, I said, Joanne, you have to let me do this play. And she did. Hmm. And lucky for me, Fires in the Mirror, but not lucky for the world, lucky for me, Fires in the Mirror was meant to have its first preview on the day of the Los Angeles riots. And I believe to this day that had that play not opened when the country was in disarray about race, I wouldn't be sitting here now. It's just that because Fires in the Mirror was about a different riot, people needed to come somewhere to reflect on where we were in race. So Mm. that's the political background of what happened. And it was an extraordinary success. It really changed my life. Put you on the map right. in a way that that was was revelatory, and and interestingly, as you as you tell this story, you then your next major piece was the Los Angeles about riot. the Los Angeles riots. Right. Having done this first piece and the timing of it. Why did you Why did you choose to make that? That's your a next good question story? because I know George, who you know I as kind of a soul mate of mine, felt it was too obvious and it wasn't necessarily the next move to do. But hmm. but Gordon uh, Davidson, who I didn't know, I you know knew him from living in L.A. but only from afar and admired him, came to see Fires in the Mirror and came backstage and said, you know, I have not seen anything like this since we did the Catonsville Nine, blah, blah, blah. Let's sit and talk. And we went to the Algonquin for breakfast and we kind of looked at each other and went, the riots. <laughs> we didn't think much further than that. And, um, you know, so as soon as Fires in the Mirror closed, which was about four months after the riots, I got on a plane, went to L.A. and started doing interviews uh, and then opened that play right after the anniversary of the riots. The trial was not even finished, the second trial, the federal trial. So we didn't – it was quite an ambitious project with everyone, Emily Mann, who uh, directed it in L.A., everyone not knowing what the story was going to be. Well, that's actually leads me to a, to a question, which is certainly the timing on Twilight Los Angeles, the timing, frankly, of what's going on in health care and the, the political issues of, of, of health care in the United States, it must be difficult to craft a piece when the story is ongoing. Or when there is no story. I mean, when I did uh, Fires in the Mirror, you know, again, Joanne, God bless her, took a chance on me. Mm -hmm. But I'll never forget that first sort of meeting with the designers and everybody. Everybody thought, you know, well, people don't really care about race. And I'm telling you, I think those designers were right. It's just that the riots were such an earth-shattering thing hmm. that people had to think about it, what, care about it. What do you mean people don't care about race, as in people pay no attention to they it? They don't want to hear about it. Oh, ah, OK. They really don't want to hear about it. I mean, that's what they said. These were white mm-hmm. people who were, you know, smart and powerful. Yeah. Had a lot more success than me. And I think they were right. And it's that it is... I don't think it's my foresight or anything. I think it was that I was interested in this and and it turned out that Fires in the Mirror was able to be of use to people. It could have been that I would have performed it and nobody would have thought that it was of use. The topicality of your pieces certainly has something to do with their success, but – Another aspect is the theatricality and your skills as a performer, and and you're you're talking about the timing and the and the factual aspect. Um, did you feel that these? Did you see yourself primarily as a journalist? Did you see yourself primarily as an actor, as a playwright? I realize they're all bound up together, but but did you see yourself growing as a performer even as you were creating these works oh, for yourself? Yeah. Oh my God! I mean, that you've, the first person's really asked me that question that way, and that would be a whole other interview. But it's enormous because um, I told you that at the core of who I am is that I'm trying to master a craft, 
and to some extent, I've created the craft that I'm trying to master, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is not Stanislavski. I think Stanislavski and I would have liked each other very much. And his chapter in building a character um, on the threshold of the subconscious, I think I think if I – if Stanislavski and I would spend a very – if he would meet with me, if, if I would have been able – if history would have allowed me to be with him and if he would have given me a meeting, I think we would have talked for a full weekend and had to have – food sent in um, because we have a lot to say. But on the other hand, I was kind of a little bit turning my back on the method to create the craft that I have because I don't believe that every character lives in me. I believe that I have to be in a pursuit of the other that I will never achieve. That uh, you, Even if you say, oh, she nailed Al Sharpton, say, for example, as people said about uh, my portrayal of him in Fires in the Mirror, I'm trying to get to be something of that, and I can never be it because Al Sharpton is Al Sharpton, and everyone knows that, and it's not a fiction, so it's there for everybody to see that I'm failing. I mean, you could guess, oh, I think that's Hamlet, or I think that's you know, I don't know, nurse, you know, Mrs. Acolytus on Nurse Jackie because you don't have anything to compare it to other than other performances of Hamlet. But but everybody knows who Al Sharpton is or Lauren Hutton or Lance Armstrong. And so it's gracious of people to say, oh, my God, you really – but it's really this effort that I'm making to get there knowing I can never get there. But trying my hard – my hardest to master a craft that – is goes back to a simple saying of my paternal grandfather, a man with a sixth grade education, who never would have imagined that I would have been an actor and didn't live to see me become one, um, said to me as a child, if you, if you say a word often enough, it becomes you. That's the craft I'm trying to master, that if I say these words over and over again, that something will happen which will create for you an illusion that I have come close to being able to illuminate something about what that person is trying to say or what they're struggling with. So that's the craft at the center of it. And 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 it 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 calls out for all these other aspects. You know, it calls out for reality, which puts me in the realm of journalism, right? Because I want to be with Real people. Um, I wish I had a perfect studio where they could come and sit as if, if I were a photographer taking their picture. But I know I need to go to them to be in their environment and take that picture. So I go out and I take that picture. And in the beginning when I was developing this, I read – I studied talk shows to study interviews. I read books about the psychoanalytic interview. I looked at photographs. I did all these things to learn things. I read about anthropologists. I did all these things to – I l- listened to many interviews that Alan Lomax, a great musicologist, did. I did all these things to learn how people study and document people so that I would then have that thing to bring back into my studio so I could study the craft of how do you become another human being, knowing that I could never be anybody but me. You, you, you use the phrase, you know, wow, you nailed Al Sharpton. I think if people see your work and only admire the mimicry, they've certainly missed the point. Why? Do Don't I have, you think? Well, will you tell because, me? It's a great because way to say they, that. if they look at you only as an impressionist, you're not Rich Little. You're not well, Frank Gorshin. No. Well, for, first of all, uh, of course we want people to laugh, you know, because that means they're there in the audience. But I'm not doing it for the laugh. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I do do it for the laugh, I realize sooner or later that that's a mistake. Hmm. You've written a couple of books. Um, one, Talk to Me, which really is about your process and certainly if – people find this conversation interesting, they should probably go to the book and they'll get a lot more uh, about it. You also wrote a book called Letters to a Young Artist, straight-up advice on making a life in the arts. What compelled you to to do that? Um, fantastic editor, Luann Walter, <laughs> who uh, – at Random House, who wanted to have a meeting with me and – called me in and said, you know, I think you have a younger audience than you than you know. And, you know, what what could you do about that? And I thought about it and I just thought, well, maybe I'll write something for artists. I knew um, – I mentioned to you that I got an MFA from, um, uh, from ACT and I'd written a thesis called Towards Developing a Method and you know those things just stay in the library. And 
and uh, over time, I'd be say on an elevator here in New York, or or go to a bar or a restaurant, and somebody would come over to me in a kind of a, almost conspiratorial way, like a young waiter or a bartender, and say, "I was at ACT, and uh, I read your thesis. Thank you." Hmm. And so I knew that there was something in that that gave people something. And I wanted Letters to a Young Artist to be like that. I wanted it to be something that actors or other artists carried in their back pocket and gave people when they were having a rough day. And, of course, I thought of Rilke's uh, Letter to a Young Poet Hmm. when we thought about the title. Earlier in this interview, you were talking about that when you even have interns in the rehearsal room, um, everyone is present. Everyone is there, even if they don't speak. And or even if we don't ask them to speak. Right. I mean, to be... What I find fascinating, and, and I can wave in front of you, that I'd written down a quote from your book, Letters to a Young Artist, because I found it so interesting. And it speaks to being present. Presence requires being aware. Presence requires paying attention. Presence requires using your intelligence. Presence requires allowing others to make an impact on you. It seems that's an important idea for you and apparently you feel for all performers. Well, uh, that's right. And Joe Chaikin uh, writes, you know, so eloquently in his book, The Presence of the Actor, about um, this kind of a subconscious place almost that we're coming from when we're really, really present. And um, it's work to be present, especially in the world now when you you know, you kind of want to get to that black barrier. You want to get to another world. And so I think that it's a form of exercise that I would – in my classes, I, I talk about it at NYU. You know, I say um, you have to be here for each other. <laughs> We skip rope before class begins because I want people to understand that they shake off the other way of being halfway there. Otherwise, if we're doing real-life stuff, why should people come and spend money watching us do what they do? The only way to be able to put the real life on the stage is to assume that it's taking as much energy as it takes for a dancer to dance or a singer to sing or a violinist to play the violin if it's really an art. So then one has to begin to practice that heightened form of energy and that's why I ask people to understand that if they're unable to be present not just for me but for everybody they're draining the energy out of the environment we have spoken only glancingly of the specificities of your pieces Um, in the midst of let me down easy you worked on something called the Arizona project which centered uh which was at least commissioned around the idea of celebrating Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, is that a piece that you plan to do more work on or is there something else that you see as the next piece after Let Me Down Easy? Uh, I probably won't do anything more uh, with that piece, although it was an extraordinarily rich experience. It was a commission specifically for uh, Arizona State University School of Law, now the Sandra Day O'Connor School of Law, first law school in the country to be named after a woman, if you can believe that, hmm. first law school in the country named after anybody other than a donor, which you probably could believe. Um, I'm going to do something uh, down at the New York Theater Workshop. And so uh, Jim Nicola and I are talking about that and uh, wish me luck. Hmm. Because we've got about a minute left, I don't want to miss asking you about – you've held roles um, as director of the Institute for Arts and Civic Dialogue at Harvard. Uh, I believe are still currently artist in residence at the Center for American Progress. These are think tanks and – what is the role of an artist hmm. in these things that so many of us, certainly I don't even fully understand what a think tank is? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, you know what the role of an artist always can be is to give something different wherever there is quote-unquote official language. Um, and uh, those kinds of places have to be very concerned about official language about grabbing a hold of the moment of what the words are and taking control of the words. And I think artists see things another way, upside down. And 
you know, when you meet leaders like John Podesta at Center for American Progress, I was artist in residence at MTV, Tom Freston, during his time uh, at the Ford Foundation uh, when Susan Beresford was there. I think there's a real value to having somebody who sees the world differently in its contradictions, um, in other than black and white, and who's not trying to win anything other than maybe a Tony, um, but we're not trying to win to be to lead the world, that there's something very useful about having that person there. With that, Anna DeVere Smith, thank you so much for all of your visions of the world, and thanks for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded at the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and you can follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of The Wing's fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.